You are listening to Lone Star Community Radio on 104.5 KCZW LP Conroe and 106.1 KZCC LP Conroe and worldwide at IRLoneStar.com. Hi, welcome to the Legal Connection Show. I'm Tony Collins, an attorney in Conroe. Um, the Legal Connection Show airs on Tuesdays uh, from 12 to noon every week, and it is a community service uh, program to help the community with um, various legal questions they have, and we can answer them here on the show. So if you have any questions, you can uh, find us on, I. Uh, you can contact us on our Facebook page, and there's a message placed there at, that's at uh, the Legal Connection Show um the Legal Connection Show on Facebook. You can also find us on YouTube if you want to watch uh, programs that you missed part of or didn't hear the whole thing or want to watch repeat. Um, you can uh, find us on, if you want to listen live in the local band, on FM 104.5 or FM 106.1. Um, but if you drive outside the local band of Conroe, then you can always catch us again later on IRLoneStar.com. You can go and look at all of our past shows, or you can go to YouTube or Facebook. Okay, so uh, I want to say that we are in our new digs over here in the City Hall building in Conroe that on the first floor, and they are beautiful. So um, kudos to Station Manager Dick for his new move, and it's just a wonderful thing. And um, today's show uh, is going to be on uh, U-Visas. I have a lot of clients that... Are, are not that were here legally on visas and those visas have expired are um, they're not here legally but they've been here a long time through DACA their parents brought them over when they were like one so I've got some um, some really good hard-working clients that have been here since they were children um, are their visas have expired and they don't know what to do to be able to be here legally um, I am completely opposed to people coming over the uh, the border in this what's basically an invasion uh, without going through the proper protocol and processes because you know they're they're skipping the line it's not really fair uh, and I don't buy for a minute that all of them are refugees running from you know uh, war torn countries most of them are here for economic purposes uh, but uh, regardless there uh, I get a lot of questions and I'm not an immigration attorney I do a little bit of, I dabble in it I go over here to immigration and get people their bonds but um, I get a lot of questions on what you need. What can you do if you are a uh, if you're not here legally? You've been here a long time. You've married a citizen. You have a child, uh, but you crossed over uh, without uh, illegally, and it's it's you know pretty near impossible to come over illegally and uh, without going back and going through the proper process. And so. Um, one of the methods that I learned about doing criminal defense was uh, the U visa. There's, there's, uh, you know, I want to say 45, 100 different visas you can come over on and different ways to be here. But the U visa was something that I was unfamiliar with, and it was uh, up until about 10 years ago. And I believe it stands for universal visa. Not sure what actually what the anachronism is, but. Uh, the U.S. Citizen and Immigration Services um, have recently updated this program. And so I want to talk a little bit about that today. And then we're going to skip over to just a lot of frequently asked questions that I get from 
you know, my friends and, and uh, listeners that have sent questions in that I just wanted to answer. They're kind of fun. I wanted to go over them just to, just for the fodder. And so uh, because we, not all people that listen are uh, people that are here uh, illegally that need information on the U visa system, I'm only going to hit on that for a little bit today. But um, but here is the gist of the U visa program, all right? Um the uh, U non-immigration status visa, the U visa, is a program that is set aside for victims of certain crimes who have suffered mental or physical abuse and are helpful to law enforcement or government officials in the investigation of the prosecution of that criminal activity. And um, so, so basically, it is a program where somebody's here illegally, but they've been involved in a, a, a criminal uh, process, but are afraid to come forward, and so they've created this program so that these people will help prosecute those people. And um, the first time I learned about the U visa program was when I was representing a client who uh, two uh, people that were here illegally had gotten in a fight, and the um, my client. Uh, they both were seriously injured, like bleeding, like it was a knife fight. It was bad. And my client all along had maintained the same story that what had happened, and he had witnesses basically that uh, this other, they'd all shared an apartment over in Fort Bend, and uh, there was another roommate that was mad that my client was on the phone talking to his girlfriend and keeping awake. So he basically, um, they started antagonizing each other, and this other person uh, tried to gouge his eyes out with a screwdriver, and they uh, and my client grabbed some scissors, and so it wasn't an actual knife fight, but it was weapons, uh, things that were available, and uh, they almost killed each other uh, in this fight. Well, the the uh, the person that my guy was fighting was bleeding, but but ran out the windows. He was losing the fight, and my guy uh, basically kind of chased after him and. Went back in. He didn't go to the hospital, but he was seriously injured. He needed stitches later because his wounds did not heal. Um, ultimately, over a period of like eight years, um, the other person went to the hospital under an, an alias name. And, of course, immigrants all get free you know, medical care. He was stitched up, gave a wrong name, and a police report was made because when you go to the hospital and you're seriously injured, uh, the police are called in. He put a spin on the story saying the other guy started, he didn't do anything, blah, 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 and and then fled to uh, California after he was all stitched up. Well, um, Fort Bend County tried to indict this uh, this crime, and it had to be no bill because the he had he was nowhere to be found, the alleged victim. Um, but they wouldn't let go, and so they brought it back again, and it, then it was true build. I don't know why. In this case, you know, I, I did a speedy trial to act motion um, because after ten years they wanted to go to trial with it, and they found this guy in California, and they Fort Bend County offered him. A, a U visa status. He could stay here in the United States um, with all expenses paid and, you know, victims funding. You get like $25,000 if you're a victim of certain crimes from the state of Texas, even if you're not a citizen. And um, various other things if he'd come testify. So the Fort Payne County just wanted to win. They really didn't care what the, the truth was. And so um, they brought him in. They uh, put him in one of, you know, really, really nice hotels. They flew him in. They flew his family in. He had a family by now. Um, They said, if you testify, uh, 
you know, and help the state prosecute my client, uh, we're going to give you citizenship. And that's basically what happened. And so they came in, and I had filed a motion for a speedy trial because it had been too long, and my witnesses weren't there anymore. Um, and uh, the judge, I learned a good lesson on that. If you don't actually have a hearing on a motion for a speedy trial, then it doesn't stick. And if you file a motion for a speedy trial and you ever asked for a continuance, which I did because I was trying to find my client's victims, then uh, you lose your uh, your your Sixth Amendment right for a speedy trial. And so we didn't get that. We went forward. I didn't have my guy testify because I thought, you know, that would be, uh, you know, unnecessary because, you know, uh, the other guy was lying and I could prove it by his testimony. But that's not what happened. The jury saw that my guy was angry when the other guy was lying. And they thought, oh, he's an angry guy. He must have done this. And it was a split decision uh, initially, but they had a very strong uh, grand jury foreman. And my my client got, ended up being convicted. And I was stunned because the other guy was such a liar. This other guy ended up getting U visa status and became a citizen. And he was a violent criminal. He was a violent criminal, even in California, and still got citizenship or a UV, not citizenship, but UV is a status to stay um, because the Fort Bend County wanted a win. It was really awful. Ultimately, um, I was, a, I put my, when I saw that happen and I didn't even know that my client was making faces, I've, from now on, I learned a really strong lesson about that too. I'm going to get one of those um, unknown comic uh, lunch bags and with hells cut out and put them over the head of my client. If I think for one second, they're going to be you know, making anything but a stoic face and not looking down. I just uh, could not believe that we lost that case. And so um, we ultimately got probation for my client because I put him on the stand. He had a lot of character witnesses. He had been here since he was a child, um, had a business, uh, really, really good guy. Had done a lot of community service for uh, so much better than the guy that testified against him. I, I just didn't call that one right. But I think we would have won had my God not been basis. And I didn't know that until uh, somebody that was watching the trial came up to me in, while the jury was deliberating and said, you are going to lose this trial. Your client was had, you know, a snarly look on his face, and the guy was testifying, and the jury was not buying it. And uh, they were they were not believing that guy, but they really didn't like your guy more. I just couldn't believe it. So I learned about the U visa in that trial. And the U visa is a way for... It is an alternative for people to say that have no other means of staying here. They've gone through all their visa options. And so the gist of it is if you are a victim of a crime, you can apply for U visa status. And so in a nutshell, I'm going to give you some of the parameters for it. So um, if you know somebody that is you've known that has been here since they're one, they speak only English, they really don't have a home country to go to because their their family's been here forever, then this might be an option. And the, the rules have changed just slightly this year during COVID. So I want to bring it up. Um, all right. So uh, this legislation was intended to strengthen the ability of law enforcement agencies to investigate and prosecute cases of domestic violence, sexual assault, trafficking of non-citizens and other crimes, while also protecting victims of crimes who have suffered substantial mental or physical abuse due to crime, due to the crime and the willing and are willing to help law enforcement authorities in the investigation or prosecution of the criminal activity. The legislation also helps law enforcement agencies to better serve victims of crimes. It backfired in that case that I just told you about, the example, because they allowed a, a, a true criminal to, to basically be able to stay here in the United States and probably commit more crimes by alleging a, a, a criminal activity uh, against another 
a person that wasn't here legally. It was just Fort Bend County's prosecutor wanting to win. And he knew it. I knew it. We all knew it. It was just the prosecutors wanting to move up the ladder to get, you know, a higher position in the prosecution, you know, uh, ranking. And, uh, you know, it's just kind of an aggravation to uh, manipulate the system like that just for a win. And, and that kind of reminds me of something my husband sent me today. And I want to bring this up. I want to get back on the, you know, the, the track of the show. But um, I have known my uh, my beloved husband for 15 years today, uh, December 1st. Um, we met, uh, uh, we went on our first date. And uh, so we kind of celebrate this as our anniversary date. And uh I can truly say that that was the the day that I met him in, in person and actually got to we met on match.com of all places but um when I met him I can truly say that I had my soul after all my life searching for my soulmate finally had peace and uh so I've just had the most peaceful 15 years ever and so I love you honey thank you for uh, a wonderful 15 years and you know the miracle of a digital uh, 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 dating services because and there's so many horror stories and this one actually worked out pretty well. Um, he was everything he said he was and more and I love you with all my heart. So um, thank you Match.com and thank goodness I didn't stay on that for very long and uh, I had the wherewithal to find who I wanted to look for, which I want to tell people who are at Match.com. The criteria I used and I was the one that found him was I wanted anybody over six feet. I had a height. I have a you know a, I guess a uh, a, a prejudice to uh, dating people that are under the six foot level for unknown reasons. It was just my bar. And um, also uh, with PhDs and above, I wanted somebody that I could have a conversation with because you can't go by uh, income and you really can't trust people anyway when they say that, uh, what they make or what they don't make. And that's a bad reason to me that want to date somebody anyway to be a gold digger. But um, I liked the idea that I thought if somebody had the initiative to go get a PhD, if they weren't a total bookworm once I met them, which I met a lot um, on Match.com, uh, that would they would probably be a fun person to have a dialogue with until I turn 100, which reminds me, Mel Brooks is still alive at 95, and I just thought that was so interesting. He was on the Today Show yesterday. Betty White is going to be 100 in uh, January. Uh, you know, a few weeks, and um, Dick Van Dyke's in his 90s. These people are just moving and shaking and going, and so I fully expect that I'm going to live till about 100, and so um, that was why I was happy to meet Jim. He needs to stay alive till 102. Now, uh, back to U visas. U visa eligibility. This is really important because if you know somebody that wants to use this, they have to meet this criteria. It's not just, oh, I was a victim of a crime. Um, the, the person that may be eligible... Uh, is eligible if, and this is not a, a completely comprehensive list, but a pretty good list. Um, if they are, if if they are a victim of a qualifying criminal activity, I'm going to go over that list in a minute. Um, they have suffered substantial physical or mental abuse as a result of having been a victim of that criminal activity. So you have to prove it. You can't just say it happened. You've got to have evidence. You've got to have a lot of documents. Um, they have information about the criminal activity, and if they are under the age of 16, are unable to provide the information due to a disability, a parent, a guardian, or a next of friend may possess that information about the crime on their behalf and provide it to um, the ICE group that will be working with it. And I say ICE, I'm really talking about 
uh, the federal government in, that's dealing with this type of immigration status type case. Um, they were also helpful and are still helpful and are likely to be helpful in the future to law enforcement in the investigation or the prosecution of the crime. Um, if they are the, uh, under the age of 16 are unable to provide them information due to a disability, they may assist law enforcement, a, a, a guardian or legal guardian, our um, parent or next friend may provide law enforcement with that information on their behalf. Um, and this is when you have a child who's been sexually abused by, you know, uh, through whoever it may be, if they've been set up in, with prostitution. And in these cases, they're calling children 14, 15, 16 children. What I have found in my uh, criminal defense is that many times uh, these, quote, children are not, they're willingly uh, engaging in prostitution for money, and they have parents that don't want them doing that, and they're doing it because it's a way to fund, they're angry with their parents or they want to be independent. And so, you know, I, I kind of have a, mixed feelings about calling a 15-year-old victim of prostitution when you find out, when you when you interview, um, you know, the other witnesses and, and, and uh, uh, the, the, the actual reporting that you're getting from the police through their investigations, that they're voluntarily doing this. And the age of reason in, is usually 10 to 12, uh, up to 15, and so you have to look at it a case-by-case basis. But most of these children and Kids, quote, kids coming over the border that are working age children that are like 15, they're not really children. They're, they're the age of reason. They're coming up here on their own, and, and they're, they're not, you know, these, these child victims, but they're treated as children if they're under the age of 18. And so it's a, another way of, uh, I guess, having an, an, an invasion coming up if they come over and then claim victimization. Um, anyway, the, uh, the crime has to have occurred in the United States or violated U.S. laws. Um, they are admissible to the United States. If they are not admissible, they may apply for a waiver on a Form I-142, an application for advance permission to enter as a non-immigrant. These forms can be filled out. Uh, they're in English and Spanish and various other uh, 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 languages. Uh, I was just reading about the uh, the Hague Convention and how the main languages are six primary languages they use but and I think those are the languages that the forms are translated into it's like Chinese Spanish French um, Arabic and uh, there's one or two others that maybe German I can't Italian I can't remember what the other two are but uh, those you can actually fill these out on your own you don't actually need an immigration attorney but uh, I think it's always good to have some guidance in case you blow it and the attorney can save you a lot of money and time if they know what they're doing. Um, all right, so uh, the, the, you would become inadmissible, we'll go over this shortly, if uh, while you were here you committed crimes and uh, there's a, a few other things that would uh, show that you were inadmissible, like I believe uh, coming uh, entering the United States after you've been deported and, and various other things, but we'll go over that in a minute. Now, qualifying criminal activities are important. There's a litany of them on this laundry list. Um, there's even a, um, a a disclosure that says that uh, in this law, this federal law that says any uh, this this list includes any similar activity where the elements of the crime are substantially similar. So um, uh, it also includes attempts, conspiracy, or solicitation to commit any of the above or related crimes. And so it, this is not um, 
uh, uh, I guess, all-inclusive, but it's it does limit some of the crimes that you can say that where you were a victim. But here's the, uh, the, the, the gist of the crimes if you were a victim or the person that is trying to use the U visa as a victim can assert against uh, a, a criminal, all right, or a person that you're accusing of this crime. Uh, abduction, ab- abusive sexual contact, blackmail, domestic violence, extortion, false imprisonment, female genital mutilation. When I see some of these, it goes right to where I see uh, two people that have come over the border illegally during like one of these invasions, and then um, or they meet up later, and they're mad at their significant other, and they suddenly claim false imprisonment when they've gone out on a date, or extortion, or one of these sort of marital issues so that they can stay and they can get the other one deported. And I see it all the time in in uh, marital disputes uh, between two people that are not here legally. And it, it's sort of, um, you know, distasteful that they would try to utilize the system to be against the other person who's significant other so they're the person that's helped them survive is now going to be victimized by them so it's kind of turning the you know the car the uh what do you call the pot calling the kettle black but anyway um extortion false imprisonment felonious assault fraud in foreign labor labor contracting i think that's when you have people that are coming over and like these uh, trucks that are they have fish on them and they're uh, they're brought over to work, but uh, they can claim this. But a lot of times they're pay- paying coyotes, you know, uh, eight, ten, fifteen thousand dollars to get them up here, and so it's not a fraud in foreign labor contracting. It's actually uh, fraud in uh, it's not that at all. They've come up on their own voluntarily, but it is a method that you can use if you can put a spin on it. Um, I say you meaning the person that wants to use the U visa application. Um, hostage, incest, involuntary servitude, kidnapping, manslaughter, murder, obstruction of justice, peonage, I've never heard of that, uh, perjury, prostitution, rape, sexual assault, sexual exploitation, slave trade, hmm. stalking, torture, trafficking, witness tampering, unlawful criminal restraint, and other related crimes. Um, applying for the U visa, to apply for a petition for U visa status you can actually do this on your own if you go to the um it's the uh, united states uh, customs and immigration services website uh they actually have a toggle for this and you can fill in these um these interactive forms i didn't know these even existed it makes it you know i don't know how immigration attorneys i guess it's because it's there's so much red tape but you can actually try to start it on your own, or you can see how it works. You can go and toggle open Form I-918, Petition for You Non-Immigration Status. And it's just an interactive form that you can fill out, or you can fill it out for your client or your friend or the person that's your maid that's working at your house that you need work with, or uh, the litany of people that actually need help that want to stay here. And I know Catholic Charities helps many, many people that truly are here uh, because they are being terrorized in their home countries. Um, and a lot of people at Catholic Charities may not know about this, but while they can't practice law, they could ask, they could at least direct their uh, clients to the Form I-918 petition for the U visa. Um, a supplement to that is the 
Form I-918 Supplement B, and that supplement must be signed. This is really, really critical. In order for this to fly, it must be signed by the authorized official of the certifying law enforcement agency, and the official must confirm that the person that was victimized that wants the U visa uh, were helpful and currently being helpful or will likely be helpful in the invest- investigation of the prosecution of the case. So, in other words, uh, the law enforcement agency that where the crime was committed has to fill out an affidavit uh, confirming uh, that uh, the person that wants the visa was helpful. The crime actually was committed. There has to be a police report that was filed and an ongoing investigation and has to be legit. So without that, your visa will not fly. Um, uh you also, um, if any admissible issues are present, you must file inadmissible issues, meaning you had uh, came in illegally um, and you've been here for you know too long. DACA didn't fly. Um, you have some felonies on your record or various other things. Um, then uh, that person that wants to give you some must also file a form I one ninety two. It's the application for advanced permission to enter as a non-immigrant to request a waiver of admissibility. So that's just one more litany of, uh, of, of forms you have to fill out. But it's all on this this section for the UV so that you can get to by going to the website that I just referenced, which is the, uh, once again, it's called the U.S. Citizenship and Immigration Services website. Um, uh, further, a, a personal statement describing the criminal activity of which uh, that person that, that wants to get the UV so was a victim needs to be included and evidence to establish each eligibility requirement. And you can also go to the forum section, specifically the humanitarian benefits based form section of um, th- this uh, website has more forms that you can fill out and you can kind of browse through them and see if they apply. Now, you may also apply for the U-Visa if you are outside the United States, but to do this, you must follow all the necessary forms for the U-Visa status with the Vermont uh, Service Center. And the Vermont Service, it's kind of weird. You don't apply um, in Texas. There's only two places you, you can send this petition. In Texas, though, while you filed this outside the United States with Vermont, in Texas, you file in Nebraska. That's just, it's weird. I didn't know anything was even going on in Nebraska, but that's where you filed for your U visa petition. So it's not a standard petition that you file um, over here at, the, at 1600 Smith, or is it not 1600 Smith? It's, uh, oh, you know, it's the uh, Leland building downtown where they have the non uh, it's where the you go have your immigration hearings if the immigrant's not incarcerated, you're out on bond, um, or you have your, your master hearings and the various other immigration hearings over in Conroe at the facility up here off of First Street. And, um, oh gosh, I forgot what the name of the street was because I drive it so much. But, but anyways, it's the street by the old driver's license place over there off First Street uh, near Loop uh, 336 um, up here in Conroe. All right, so um, you must, if you're out of the, if, if you're, the U visa uh, applicant is out of the country, you must follow all instructions sent to the, Ver, the, the Vermont Service Center. Um, uh, this would including, uh, include having your fingerprints taken at an embassy or a consulate. Um, if the petition is approved, then the consulate process in the United States, which will include an interview with the consulate officer at the ne- nearest embassy uh, with the country that that person is staying, uh, I guess, would be a citizen in if that's where they're at. It could be that they're, you know, still in Mexico trying again because 
uh, perhaps uh, Biden is, uh, you know, actually uh, complying with Trump's, uh, uh, I guess, housing in Mexico uh, mandate. I'm not sure. And I think the U.S. Supreme Court held that that was uh, constitutional uh, for people during COVID and, and I think before to not to be allowed to cross the border for for any reasons. And I can't remember what all of the provisions were for it. But basically, I think everybody knows it's the don't uh, you have to stay in Mexico until you're kind of called up instead of a catch and release and just you know uh, turned over in the United States without uh, much more than just a a, a note uh, a paper clipped to uh, your jacket to come back. Um, anyway, the information about the nearest United States Embassy or Consulate can be found at uh, the usembassy.gov website. Um, and then there's various other things about extensions, filing for others, and a cap. It says there's a limit on the number of U-visas that can be granted to principal petitioners each year. That's only 10,000. However, there's no cap for family members deriving status from the principal applicants, such as spouses and children and eligible family members, which is kind of crazy. That means only one person can wear the visa. So you can bring over your entire family, which is insane. If, you, if it's fraud and you're just saying that you were... Um, that you were injured, and let's say you're actually an, um, you know, an Iranian or a, a, you know, an ISIS terrorist coming over here, and you know the system, uh, and you can bring your entire uh, mob or posse over to come into the United States if you can pull that off, which clearly in uh, 9-11, they were able to come over and get flying lessons, and, uh, and I guess they were here actually on legitimate visas to learn how to fly our planes and then got on them and then, you know, killed so many people through their terrorist attacks. So that that could happen, too, if we're not uh, careful. And uh, I, I see that happening if we're so naive as to uh, to not have a good protocol in place to prevent that in the future. And we don't right now. Um, so uh, if the cap is reached, the 10,000 you would think that that would be a hard thing to meet, but apparently it's, it's surpassed every year. Um, if the U visa, the number on the U visa applicant's cap is met um, before all U visa petitions have been adjudicated, then the government will create a waiting list for, all in, for any eligible uh, principal or derivative petitioners that are awaiting final decision. And that's where the new um, June of 2021 uh, a mandate came in that allowed people that were here on the U visa waiting list to get a four-year, um, it, it, here I'll just read, it says in June 14, 2021, uh, they announced a new bona fide determination process whereby certain U petitioners and their family members while pending U petitions can receive a four-year work authorization and deferred action while they wait for full adjudication. Um, that's just insanity. Uh, that you can be waiting. You've put in a petition, and you're waiting. It may not even be a little digital petition, but you can get, while waiting, a petition to be here legally and work, and you can be a terrorist. I mean, it's kind of crazy, but that what was passed in, uh, during, uh, during our uh, beloved uh, Biden administration. But um, it says... Um, the practice uh, advisory explains the process as we understand it based on current information and draws heavily on the new guidance published in the USCIS policy manual. Um, so uh, that's that, that's the new mandate. Um, I guess I'm getting ready to uh, look into uh, helping many of my people that, that are legit- legitimately uh, in need of 
uh, keeping their status uh, to be eligible to work here in the United States because they've been here since, you know, DACA didn't go through or hasn't gone through yet, and their visas have expired. Um, the, uh, you know, you don't want to uh, to lie in the U visa status, but I can honestly tell you that most of my clients that are here, uh, well, not most, but a large majority, um, uh, have been victim to crimes. They're they're they've been uh, the, the fraud has been committed upon them by, uh, you know, them being sold stolen cars, or they've been victimized by labor. They haven't gotten their paychecks because the people they work for 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 uh, you know weeks and weeks and months and where they've been promised money haven't paid them because they quote haven't been able to give them a W nine because they don't have a social security and they knew that they didn't. So um, there is a lot of victimization and fraud to a lot of really really hardworking people that would be amazing citizens given the opportunity. So. Um, so it, it, the process can work. It's just that there's so much, um, uh, there's so much fraud and, and people that, that that use the system improperly, and and that's really bad. Okay, so uh, let me ask Station Manager Dick um, how much time I have because I'd like to go over some of my frequently asked questions that I think are kind of fun. Uh, Twenty minutes. Oh, perfect. Twenty minutes is just enough time to kind of go over these. I did want to add one thing that my husband told me, my beloved husband. If I didn't mention this earlier, that we, um, that we, uh, that he saw on Fox News, and he sent me this morning. And I don't know if it's old or it was new, but it just you know tickled me, so I wanted to share it. Um, there was a headline that said um, that the uh, there was a, a case where the uh, Attorney General of Mississippi was going to, I think before the United States Supreme Court, where the Attorney General of Mississippi was going to argue in favor of the law, and the U.S. Solicitor General uh, and Attorney uh, Julie, uh, I think it was Rillikin, uh, would be arguing the other side. <laughs> I thought that was so funny, uh, that the U.S. Solicitor General are going to obviously, you know, if you read into it, they're not arguing the law. So um, I thought that's a good way to, I guess, open up if you're on your own or if you're in a misdemeanor court or a, a JP court, if you're representing yourself, you want to present your first statement by saying that you will be arguing the law and your opposing uh, counsel are. Our, our parties will be arguing the other side. <laughs> so it's kind of cute. All right, so here are some questions that I've had asked to me, and I wanted to share some of them because I thought they were just kind of interesting, and these are the things that you don't hear on the show because it's just kind of a hodgepodge, a um, lanyop of, of, of different things that have come up. So um, uh, it may fall into a category that you want to, you want to know, maybe not. Um, all right, so... Uh, one of my, my listeners asked, I wrote a check to someone for a used washing machine and dryer. They promised to deliver it that afternoon. They did not deliver it. And when I called and uh, and when they kept, oh, I'm sorry, they did not deliver it. And when I called, they kept coming up with excuses. In other words, this person gave them a check uh, uh, for something they didn't receive. I mean, you would wait to get the money until you received it, or, you know, you may not even receive it. Uh, so this person says they stopped payment on the check as soon as they figured out that they were being ripped off because they were going to get the washer and dryer delivered. Um, and then they went out and they bought a different, different washing machine. Now, uh, fortunate for them, the check hadn't been cashed. Uh, the man that they gave the check to has now uh, filed criminal charges uh, against them for writing a hot check because they stopped payment on the check. And obviously he tried to 
uh, to cash it later. And so they wanted to know if they could do this. And the answer is, under Texas law, you may be charged with the issuance of a bad check only if you give the check knowing that you do not have sufficient funds in the bank to cover the payment of the check. In other words, if you have $75 in your account and um, you give someone a check for 200 you could be charged with a crime after the check bounced. So you weren't able to put the money in to cover it. It, it may not have had the time, but it couldn't be covered in a timely fashion, and you knew when they were going to deposit it. The law, however, is not designed to interfere with an individual's right to stop payment on a valid check because of a dispute with the person that you're dealing with. Um, if he didn't deliver as promised on the contract, and in this case it was the washing machine, a you do not owe the money and have the right to stop payment. Assuming that you had enough money in the bank to cover the checks, stopping payment is not a crime. Okay. So, so no, this guy was just a fraudster all the way around. He just wanted the money. He wasn't going to come up with it. And then this, um, this guy said, I'm going to file charges against you if you, you know, just kind of threatening them because obviously they know how to work the system. So you don't have to worry about that um, if you have the money bank. But don't write hot checks because if you do write one, and even and, and not knowing uh, is, is uh, I mean, people write checks all the time, too. And CVS's and Walgreens are the worst. I think Target and Walmart, too. People don't use checks that much anymore. But if you want to float checks, they, people still do it. Um, they will prosecute. And you will not know that you were, have a prosecution for a bad check in a JP court until you're pulled over and you find out there's a warrant. Um, because they will prosecute on these bad checks. Uh, uh, so if you write a check, uh, follow through with it and make sure that it was cashed. Don't just wait to see that it wasn't or figure it out. Uh, reconcile your bank account because you may have a hot check charge that you didn't even know about. And, you know, once you pay it. But the problem is, is that in, in Houston, they'll pick you up and put you in the city jail. And um, or wherever the checks, if you have a bunch of them, they'll just take whatever the jurisdiction is and throw you in jail. And then you may get time served, uh, but still have to do the restitution by paying the, the CBS Walgreens target or whatever. So... Uh, don't write hot checks if you don't have that uh, the money in the account. All right, next one I thought was an interesting question that I answered. Um, the 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 person asked, I had a small fender bender in a grocery store parking lot. Neither of us wanted to report the accident to our insurance company, so we just agreed that he would pay my repair bill on my car. I had the work done, and now he won't pay. The damage to my car is only a couple hundred dollars. You know, that happened to my husband in the Home Depot parking lot. We backed into somebody. We left a note. You know, he contacted us. I think he was trying to rip us off saying it was a lot more damage. But whatever. We still paid it. Um, What can I do if if this person won't pay? This is him asking me. uh, Won't pay for the damage to my car that he caused after he agreed to it. He says it happened on private property. So he is not liable. Okay. And the answer in Texas is... This is a good case for small claims court. Uh, you can sue up to $10,000 in small claims court. If an accident, if the accident was his fault, so hopefully you've got some witnesses, maybe his statement, you want to record it while he said it, some evidence, or you're not going to have a case in small claims court. It doesn't matter whether it was private, private property or a public road. He is responsible for the damage to your car. I suggest that, or I suggested to him, this is me talking to my, the person in the mail, um, that you send him a certified letter asking that he pay, as promised. Let him know that if you cannot settle the matter, you will consider a claim in small claims court. If you do not resolve the dispute 
file a petition with a small claims court where he lives or where the accident occurred. Um, there may be a statute of limitations if it's over two years. So you have to be really, really careful about that. Um, you could also report it to the police, uh, making a report. Um, and I've done that before with insurance cases for some of my clients. If you're um, in order, the insurance company a lot of times said, well, you know, you don't know who caused the accident. You didn't file a police report. You can file it any time. And you can just call and usually do it like with the online system if it's not an emergency. And at that point, it's not. But you get a police report showing that you're filing a claim because it was legitimate. You're not lying. You just didn't follow. You didn't want it to get out of hand. You're trying to save the other person some time. But but definitely if you get an offender, but be in a parking lot or on the street, and the police aren't called, get some evidence of what happened, whether it be uh, somebody that saw the accident and get their name and number, uh, get your phone out so you can get them talking, you know, admitting that uh, to their negligence or culpability, um, something in writing, uh, you know, videotape it. Uh, you know, that's perfect video that speaks, you know, a thousand words. So get some evidence you won't be able to win in small claims court and you're going to have a really bad time later. Um, all right. So the next question I got was, I bought a television at a garage sale. The seller said it was in great shape. And he was selling it only because he bought a bigger one. I paid a high price because he told me it was in such good condition. Well, that's kind of dumb when you test it out while you're there. But that's what happened. Um, in fact, it barely works. I think what, what typically happens is it works then. But you get home and then it breaks immediately. And then, then you've got a problem because it's like, did you break it on the way? You know, there's some question about that. So really, it's buyer beware to garage sale. But in this case, um, in fact, this guy said the TV did not work. Can I use the Deceptive Trade Practices Act against this person? Can I use this law in small claims court? Can I get three times my damages if I win? Three questions. Okay. The answers are yes, yes, and maybe. Um, the Deceptive Trade Practices Act applies to any seller, including any individual selling at a garage sale. Uh, the law also makes it unlawful to make a misrepresentation about what is being sold. That goes for a house and everything else. So if your agent, if, uh, especially in this real estate market right now, um, if the person selling, whether it be the agent or the owner or somebody that, you know, has uh, some responsibility for the sale, um, makes a misrepresentation, the law makes it unlawful to make that misrepresentation. If the seller knew the representation was false, uh, was false, you can get up to three times your damages. In this case, your damages would be what it costs to get it fixed or the difference in value between what you paid and what it is worth. Um, so, I mean, if you bought a junkie TV, you can't turn it back in and get the whole amount back. You bought a junkie TV, right? Um, so, as far as the court, small claims court is no different from any other court. And we discussed that a little bit earlier today. The Deceptive Trade Practices Act may be used in small claims court as it could be in um, uh County court, uh, district court, or, um, well, it wouldn't be federal court. You'd have to have federal law to be able to apply it in federal court. But I think there's a Federal Deceptive Trade Practice Act. You have to look into that because you have two different jurisdictions you're dealing with to be able to get into federal court. Um, as I said, if you relied on what the seller said and what he said was untrue, he has violated this law. In my opinion, the price you paid is good evidence to support your allegation that he represented it was a great shape. Remember, you also have to be able to prove that you paid that amount of money. You can't just say, I gave him so much in cash and then can't prove you gave it to him because they'll say you didn't. Um, you may uh, recover up to three times damages. However, 
only if it is proven that the seller acted knowingly. In other words, you have to claim you have a claim based on the misrepresentation, but you must show that the seller knew or had reason to know it was false to collect in order to get the punitive damages was the three times. That's the maybe part. Let a repair person look at the television and find out if the, tel- if the problem has existed for a while. That's the other argument I was saying. You, they're going to say that you caused it. You may be able to convince the court that a seller must have known about the problem. Okay. So that was uh, my first three questions. Now, here's um, uh, some kind of questions I get all the time. And so I wanted to kind of make them a little bit more generic. Um, but it's the questions that I get. And so here, here goes. Um, I bought a house with my boyfriend four years ago. I just got this at my homeowners association. Um, we just split up. I continue to live in the house and make all the mortgage payments as I have for years. He says, I do not, he says, if I do not refinance the mortgage in my own name, because he's on the mortgage too, even though she's been making all the payments, he will force me to sell. Can he do this? Particularly since I've made all the payments. Um, Am I still, and I am still, can he do this? And uh, as a footnote, I am still making all the payments while I live there. The simple answer is yes. He can make you sell if he's on the mortgage. Um, Anytime people own property jointly, any one of them may go to court and force a division or sale of the property. It's called a partition. In this case, the property could not be divided, so it would be sold and the proceeds would be divided. Therefore, if you desire to continue to live there, you should refinance the mortgage and have your ex-boyfriend transfer his interest in the property to you. There's a caveat to that. There's always extra things. This is just a generic answer. If you can prove that you made those payments, you will be reimbursed for the amount of payments that you made. So if you made all the payments and you put all the damn payment down, you can show you always made all the payments with a check, which you always want to be able to prove that. Then you will be reimbursed for all those payments that were made um, in the partition suit because it's, this is all about just um, converting something into money because you can't you can't divide a house in house. You can't sell half a house, a house unless you, uh, I guess, uh, uh, convert it to a, a duplex of sorts. But but still, that's not the way it was financed. It was financed uh, jointly and undivided. So you'd still have to do something with a title to work this out. Um, but if there is an increase in value like there is right now because it's a seller's market, and so just for the house being at a location where it's at, no other work was done, and um, you uh, bought the house for a hundred thousand, but because of the, uh, the the seller's market and the economics of the the location and what have you, let's say the house is now worth a million. That happens in Memorial and in some of the higher uh, you know the areas like in River Oaks where you can buy something cheap and then suddenly it's worth you know a, a small fortune. Um, that increase in value due to just the market you can't get back. So if it was uh, if you can prove you put. $50,000 into it, the house is now worth a million because of the market, he's going to get, you know, that increase, you know, close to $500,000. Uh, uh, you'll get your, you'll you'll deduct what you would do, which would be the 50000 and then split the balance of whatever you sell it for after, the, you know, the, the, the cost and the sale and whatever you have to split. So um, be really careful when you move into a house and you finance it with somebody. If you don't have everything in writing up front, some kind of a, prenup or a a pre-division or a, you know how it's owned that you know the way it's styled the ownership before you um you uh if you decide to split which ultimately 
could happen. Uh, it's In fact, it was likely to happen with the percentages of people that don't work out these days. So be really careful about moving it with somebody and particularly financing it. And people get mortgages like that because the person that wants to buy it doesn't have good credit. And then you end up paying all this because obviously they don't, they're not a good credit risk. So, um, you know, just be really, really careful. And, and I would get with an attorney or just even write or contact me at the show and I'll kind of give you a kind of a heads up on that. Now, this is another um, interesting thing that comes up all the time. We had a show on, but I want to br- briefly brush on it. Um, one of my uh, homeowner association, um, uh, uh, I guess, members came up to me after one of the mo- meetings and asked me, um, there's a dead tree in my neighbor's yard. Uh, it looks like it's going to fall on my house. Uh, we asked the neighbor to cut it down, and he said he would if we paid him half the cost for cutting a tree down, which can get kind of expensive if they're big. Um, we just had a, a tree fall down on our um, our, our tennis she shed, uh, devastated, uh, ex- very expensive. Uh, the deductible on our insurance is over um, $25,000. And so the, the cost for an 80-foot tree falling on my she shed, can't, I can't recoup that. It's, so it's a... Uh, fallen trees are uh, the injuries and the cost are significant to get them cut down it can be up to fifteen hundred dollars and that's not even with the the stump removed so um uh so it's a legitimate question um the the person asked me said we can't afford to pay anything to have it removed um he said that because we refused to pay our share of the cost that he asked for he had no liability if the tree fell on our home um is this right uh we really can't afford to pay this, okay? The answer under Texas law is your neighbor would be liable for damage caused by the tree falling on your property if it fell as a result of his negligence. It was a tree that really needed to be removed, not just a beautiful tree that you wanted removed. Um, Based on what they told me, the tree needs to be removed because it would be negligent not to remove it. I know of no legal doctrine, however, that requires uh, my the people that are asking me this to pay any of the costs for removal. In my opinion, um, the your share quote uh, is nothing. They shouldn't have to pay anything. This is the neighbor's property, and it is his responsibility if he has a liability on it that threatens their house to take care of the problem. Um, although neighbors may agree to divide the cost of removing the tree, this is to encourage goodwill, not because of any legal obligation. Uh, my suggestion is to let those bad neighbors know that um, you expect that um, – he will take reasonable steps to protect your house by removing the tree or trimming the branches or whatever it may be that's threatening that home that is negligent, whether it be a, a tree that's going to fall over or it's got, you know, um, it, it's clearly one that's, that's not stable. Not just a beautiful tree that's bugging you. And, and another thing about that is if the branches are hanging over your property, it's, it's, that's a trespass. You have every right to trim the branches that are over your property. So if it's a beautiful oak in a beautiful shape, and um, even if he says it may kill it, you, you can't go in there killing the roots if they're on your property, especially if they're not shown. But um, uh, there's some gray area there. But if the branches are over your property, you can trim all the branches. You don't, uh, it seems to me you'd want the shade of the beautiful tree. But if you're, you know, a kind of a, the Hatfields and McCoy, you can go ahead and do that. Uh, there's nothing illegal about you uh, removing a trespass onto your property. Um, uh, there's uh, now that's kind of a general statement too, because if it's a natural uh, water flow, that's not a trespass. But that's a whole different show. We'll get into that later. But uh, with regard to trees, you can trim those branches. Um, uh, 
it says if it, you can have the tree removed um, if, uh, to go back. My suggestion is to let him know that you expect to have to have him take reasonable steps to protect your house, to have the tree removed, or to pr- have it pruned. Uh, make it clear that you are unable to assist him financially and that you, you do not believe that your inability to pay in any way affects his liability if he refuses to cut the tree. Um, so there's also sort of a gray area there. His tree is hanging over your property. Um, it's a, a limb. It's going to cause damage. You can't afford it to take care of the limb. It, it grows from a trunk that's on his side. Uh, my thought process here is that he would be liable for removing that limb on his side. You shouldn't have to go up there if it's his tree that's creating the damage. On the other hand, um, it is hanging over. You see it. Uh, you might want to go ahead and take care of that. So uh, I, I don't really get that many questions about it. But if I know that I just had a 80-foot oak tree on my own property, damaged my own property, and just barely missed my tennis court. And I, and I just feel, I feel like it's because I got a mass every day that, or, or try to go every day that I had a guardian angel that was protecting that that expense. Um, uh, the she shed, uh, you know, was a big enough expense, but not a lot, and not everything was damaged in it. Okay, I'm getting the um, uh, the two minute warning, so to speak, from station manager Dick, and um, just wanted to tell you one more question that uh really a short answer um uh, and i get uh, this is kind of fun it's real short too in fact two real quick i'm going to try to hit them in one minute each um uh, i want to be paid by check on my as a landlord on a lease rental uh my, my client asked i want to lease some land uh, can I tell the tenant that I require check and will not accept cash? The tenant keeps paying me cash, and I do not like carrying around that much money. As a general rule, you can satisfy your financial obligations by using cash or a check. Most people consider cash and checks as the same thing. However, uh, they are very different. Only cash is legal tender that may be freely exchanged. If a person wants to pay cash, he or she has the right to do so. If in your situation, however, the lease determines the method of payment. So um, if you want to be paid by check, you should make clear to the tenant before the lease is signed that they and make it as a term of the lease that they need to pay you in check. If you do not have a formal lease, you can give a 30 days notice and make a requirement and enter a formal lease that requires payment by check. Finally, last but not least, something I think is kind of fun uh, with all of these kids that, uh, you know, teenagers that think they uh, uh, know everything, basically. And it's a lot of my clients, not my own that I'm speaking of. Um, um how old do you have to be to get married in Texas? Um, this was changed just recently. Um, and while I was in law school, the ages were different. Um, uh, the age limit is 16 to be uh, to get married without the consent of a guardian, a judicial court order, or, um, uh, or consent of a parent, which is like a guardian in most cases. Uh, 16. It used to be 14. Uh, and that changed uh, September 1st, I think, 2017. So um, if you uh, want to get married and uh, you used to be able to go uh, run off to Mexico when you were 14 uh, with one parent's consent, you can't do that anymore. You have to be 16 in Texas. All right. So um, there are many, many other of these. I've got like just a litany of frequently asked questions that I'm going to go over next week on the show. So tune in um, for uh, these very generic kind of people's lawyer type questions that I'm sharing with everybody. We'll go over them. Uh, uh, Remember to uh, serve God by serving others, and we will see you, or uh, at least you hopefully will be listening next Tuesday at noon. See you later.